1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, please open. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, he's continuing in his exhortation to the church at Corinth. In chapters 8 and 9, if you have been here and you've been paying attention, the Apostle Paul has been calling the, the church at Corinth to uh, a life of service and sacrifice. He's been calling the believers at Corinth to exercise um, discipline and control as they forego some of their Christian rights and liberties for the lost, that they might win some to Christ, for the weak inside the church, they might build them up. And he's been developing this, and he gets to chapter 10, and he, he goes back to the Old Testament. And he uses several passages to illustrate what happens to believers when we do not live lives of self-control and discipline in the Lord. What happens when we fail in this, when we fail to be like the runner we saw last week, where he says goes into strict training, running the race in order to get the prize. And he shows us through a solemn warning that the way of Israel in the desert is not the way that we ought to go. And this warning he was, he was teaching to himself um, that idolatry and sexual immorality, as we will see in the, the tempting of Christ and the murmuring against God, the, the groaning against God, God all elicit discipline from God because he's a father and he disciplines those whom he loves. So Paul said last week in verse 27, he says, rather than being disciplined by God, he said, I discipline my body, I discipline my whole life, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I don't know of any greater verse for pastors and preachers of the word of God than to realize they may preach truth their whole life, and because they have not lived in accordance with that truth, they too would be disqualified. How many words do we preach and teach that will stand and condemn us before a holy God when we did not live as God has called us to live? So Paul sets a warning for himself. He sets a warning for the church at Corinth. And he sets a warning for us, for Camden Avenue Baptist Church, for every church that follows Christ this day and this age, this warning, this morning. And he does it all within the context of the glory and the power of the gospel of grace. He doesn't set this warning out and say, be careful. He says, be careful, and here's the power to do what I'm telling you to do. So, by God's grace this morning, I want to examine three things. One, our blessed, being blessed but negligent. Receiving God's mercy and grace and then not living in accordance with that. Number two, the consequences of being negligent. What happens if we spurn the blessings of God? And then three, the faithfulness of God himself. Let's take a look first at blessed but negligent. There's a fine line, saints, between living with the Christian rights and liberties that we have according to Scripture and then falling into idolatry and sin. And any of you who have walked long enough in this faith and you know Christ well, you know how easy it is for that liberty and that right to become idolatry and sinful and how deceptive sin can be, and how it can get a hold of you. Sometimes you're not even knowing it until you're so far down that path. The church at Corinth was no exception. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. When Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, that was a Pauline phrase. It was very similar to when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truthfully, truthfully, I say unto you, when Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, he's saying, wake up, pay attention, because what I'm about to say has eternal consequences for your life. So let's wake up. Can we right now? I want 45 to 50 minutes of your undivided attention to hear the word of God. Okay? 45 to 50 minutes. I want you to listen with spiritual ears to hear God this morning speak to you. 
Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, talking to you and to me, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. When I read verses 1 through 5, one word should have stood out to you, the word all. He says all, 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 all. He says it five times in four verses. Why? Because he wants the church at Corinth to know, as he wants us to know, that all those who came out of Egypt, all those who fled slavery under Pharaoh, all those that God delivered experienced the corporate blessing of God's guiding presence through the cloud of God's saving deliverance through the Red Sea, of God's hand of provision with with food and with drink. They all experienced it without exception. But, he says, not all made it to the promised land. They all experienced the divine guidance of being under the cloud. Paul draws from this, Exodus chapter 31, 13, verse 21. Now listen, this passage by its very nature has scripture embedded in it. Lots of scripture. I was sharing with the Sunday school class this morning. It is imperative that when I, when I cite a verse and I begin to read it to you, I want your ears to perk up. More often than not, when I go to tell a personal story or give an illustration, a life example, I, the whole church goes, and there's focus on that. And, and, and I, I'm glad you're listening, but my stories and my illustrations are pathetic compared to the word of God. It should be the exact opposite. If I start to talk to you about my grandmother's house and this great upstairs, you should, nah, nah. but when I say Exodus 13, verse 21, there should be laser focus on the words I'm about to tell you because this is God's word. So today, as I read to you passages from the Old and New Testament, listen, jot them down, study them this week. Exodus 13, verse 21, the cloud. We're told the Lord went before them, the Israelites, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light and that they might travel by day and by night. This great symbol of God's immediate presence in their lives, guiding them, directing them, leading them to the promised land was experienced by all the Israelites in the cloud. They all saw it. They all followed it. And it was God's calling upon them. It was God's presence amongst them and his favor upon them. They all experienced the salvation of passing through the sea. Most of you know this story well. Even non-churched people know this story well. As the Israelites fled Egypt, Pharaoh and his armies chased them. They descended upon them and they come to the Red Sea and God supernaturally parts the sea You've all seen the movie. If you haven't read the story in the Bible, and they cross, I'll read to you, Exodus 14, verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and he turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. It's such a, the imagery is fantastic. Joshua asked me last night, he goes, was it like frozen? I said, no, the wind was blowing it and it was peeling back and it stayed there as long as God desired so. Fantastic. When Pharaoh and his men attempted to pursue the Israelites through the same passage, we're told a few verses later in verse 28 of Exodus 14, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. God saved them. God brought them through. All experienced the blessing of the cloud. All experienced the blessing of salvation through the sea. All experienced God's providential hand, God providing for their basic needs. Manna from heaven, food for their bellies, water from the rock, spiritual water from the rock of Christ. Paul tells us in the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 10, all ate the same spiritual food, so they all were blessed by that food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now the rabbinical Jewish teaching at the time of Paul actually taught that a rock rolled through the desert after the Israelites wherever they would go. It's a fantastic image. I have it in cartoon form in my mind that the Israelites would get up and they'd move and this rock would roll and then it would stop. And then the rock would roll and it would stop. Reminds me of a far side cartoon I once saw. It's a fantastic picture, but what what Paul is saying here is that Christ is that rock. 
Christ is the one who provided the living waters for them. The pre-incarnate Christ was the one. And it's so fantastic because Christ is called the rock. He's revealed as such in the New Testament. It was Jesus Christ providing the living water. Now, I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying they all experienced, all of them experienced the blessing of God's guiding presence in their lives. He was there guiding them along. They all experienced God's salvation, God's saving them through the Red Sea. They all experienced God's provision, providing for their needs, food and drink to sustain them. In this particular case, Paul even says spiritual food and spiritual drink. Now, in light of that, in light of their being guided with his presence, saved by his grace, and nourished with spiritual food and spiritual drink, you would think, you would think that this people, of all people, would have an unflinching love and obedience to this God who so radically blessed them. You would think that. You would also think that their making it from Egypt into the promised land was, was a done deal. It was going to happen because this is the God working. You think those both would be true. And then we get to verse 5. Look with verse 5. Paul says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul says, nevertheless. In the Greek, it's a simple little word. It's but. But it has greater meaning here. And he, he places that in stark contrast to the five alls. They all, they all, they all, they all, they all. They all experience these radical blessings. And then he says, nevertheless, most never made it. Very few made it. In fact, we can say that most is a gross understatement. How many of that original generation that left Egypt made in the promised land? How many? Two. That's, when we talk about most, that's almost everyone. Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else was overthrown. And the word that Paul uses here in the Greek, it does, overthrown is not good. It's a word picture. And it literally means that their bodies were strewn over the ground. They were slain in the desert. They were killed in the desert. Killed by God because of their rebellion against his salvation, against his provision, against his presence. God came and he guided them. God blessed them with food and water. God saved them from Pharaoh. And what did they do? They rebelled against him. I have read that the ascent to Mount Everest is littered with the bodies of climbers that never made it. The commentator Hodges writes this. It reminded me of it. Their path, the Israelites, through the desert could be traced by the bones of those who perished through the judgments of God. Paul could offer no greater example to those in Corinth or those of us here in San Jose against a false sense of security than this historical nightmare. And it was an absolute nightmare that this generation that left in such glorious fashion of Egypt, only two made it the promised land. The rest perished in the desert. What Paul wants us to get, what I want to get personally, what I want us to get as a church, is that participating in, in the power of God and experiencing the divine revelation and God's movement in our lives, saving us by his grace, bringing us into a church, giving us the Holy Spirit, that these experiences do not relieve us of the very real responsibility to live holy lives, to pick up our cross and follow Christ daily, to exercise self-discipline and self-control, to run the race hard. Paul was saying that to the church at Corinth, and he says it to us today. My beloved, the same Jesus who spoke to Moses out of the fiery bush, the same Jesus who divided that Red Sea, the same Jesus who descended like a cloud by day and fiery pillar at night, the same Jesus who brought manna from heaven, the same Jesus who brought living water, that same Jesus said to the disciples and those who listened in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, and many of you know this well, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and following, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But then he says in verse 14, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's hard. All the fathers fled Egypt. All experienced the miraculous cloud, the parting of the sea, the food, the drink. But most were overrun. Paul said, all run. 
but only one wins the prize. All run, but only one wins the prize. That means, saints, it's not enough to simply be someone who receives the blessings without a right response. It's not enough to have God come and and dwell in your presence like he did the cloud and not run the race well. It's not enough to have him provide nourishment, food and drink for our bodies, spiritual food and spiritual drink for our souls and not pursue him with all our might. It's not enough to simply go to church and call yourself a Christian. It's not enough to simply be baptized or experience firsthand the supernatural power of God. It says that all the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and yet only two made it. This life that the apostle calls every believer to is one of dying to self. It is one of self-denial and vigilance. It's, it's one of running, not walking. It's one of control, not playing, as we will see. In other words, if the privileges and blessings of the Israelites did not prevent them from being overthrown in the desert by God, what makes us think that we won't be? If the, the radical, supernatural blessings that came down upon them did not prevent them from being overthrown, how much more we... We can't say, well, I go to church or I read my Bible or I've been baptized. That's surely sufficient. It's not sufficient. God's grace alone saves you. But in that safe state, you are called to run. You're called to live as God has ordained you to live and empowered you to live with the Holy Spirit. There's no option, saints. There's no option. So first we see this. It's a great responsibility that every believer is called to this responsibly to live self-controlled, loving, obedient lives, given all the blessings that have been poured out upon us. Because every blessing they have, we have more in Christ. Secondly, Paul uses the Old Testament to reveal the consequences of being negligent. I mean, he makes his point clear in the first five verses. We get it. But then he says, I want you to really get it. And in the next verses, 6 through 11, he says, I want you to understand what the consequences are if you do not heed this warning. And he was preaching to himself. He was preaching to Corinth, and he's preaching to us. Look at verses 6 through 11. What are the consequences of being negligent in all the blessings that have been poured out on us? Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire as they did. Listen. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so Paul's saying, all that transpired in the wilderness, all that took place, the, the, the blessings that were poured out, the rebellion against God, and then the discipline that came from God's hand, it was for the Israelites that they might have examples of what not to do. But then it was written down. And the reason that we can read it and study it is because God intended us for to for us to understand it and not do the same. Simply stated, Paul is saying, follow a similar path of sin and rebellion. Reject the abundant blessings of God Almighty and you too will experience a similar fate. Your end will be the same. In fact, he does something here that was, it's kind of hard to catch, but once I tell you, you'll see it. He uses a, a poetic literary device to to drive home his point. He wants them to see, those in Corinth, what the Israelites did not realize, that he wants us to understand the magnitude of the transgressions against a God who's been so gracious to, to guide, to be present, to save, and to provide. And he does this. He takes the, there are four blessings in verses one through five. God's guiding presence, God's salvation, spiritual food, and spiritual water. And he highlights the magnitude of spurning these blessings with four. He juxtaposes them with four sins in verses 6 through 11. Idolatry, sexual immorality, putting God to the test, and complaining. 
Four blessings, four sins. Four supernatural blessings, four super carnal sins in order, to us to, in order for us to see the magnitude of neglecting the blessings of God. And he starts off with the sin that undergirds all sins. He starts off with idolatry. And you can always start off with idolatry because everything comes back to idolatry. Worshiping a false god. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul takes the Corinthians back, and many of them knew this story well. He takes them back to one of the darkest days in the history of Israel, one of the most notorious accounts of their engaging in idolatrous worship. Those of you who remember, when Moses went up to the mountain, he didn't come back for a while, and they were fearful, and they thought, he's not coming back. And so they call his brother Aaron, and they said to him in Exodus 32, are your ears perked up? Here we go. Exodus 32, verse 1. They said to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And he received the gold, Aaron received the gold, verse 4, from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, and he said, listen closely, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And there's the same verse. That's the verse that Paul was quoting. So here you have, after God's miraculous intervention of saving them, leading them out of Egypt, saving them by bringing them through the Red Sea, Moses disappears for a while and they panic and they command Aaron to make for them an idol, a false god. In this particular case, a golden calf. Now many of us, we're so quick to condemn their seemingly short-sighted behavior and in so doing, we condemn ourselves. How so? If you had asked them at that time of, of making and then bowing down to the golden calf, are you an idolater? They would have said no. In fact, Aaron said in verse 5, he said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Translated, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. They were, they were worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping the Lord who brought them out with the golden calf as their focal point. You know what that means? It means they continued to profess to be Christians while simultaneously bowing down to an idol. Now that doesn't sound so strange, does it? That doesn't sound so short-sighted. Many of those in Corinth were doing the exact same thing. That's why Paul brings it to their attention. Many in Corinth, they were card-carrying Christians. They were professing Christ. They were going to church. And then they were simultaneously going to pagan temples and engaging in sacrificial meals to pagan gods. They were, they were professing Christ, and they were bowing down to idols. They were rising up, and they were playing. And that, that's a difficult word to translate. They're all over the map on it, but it means more than just playing. Debauchery, immorality, sexual immorality. And they did it, all this while declaring their allegiance to Christ. And it's in stark contrast to the ethical restraint and self-control Paul had just called them to in chapter 9 stark contrast now I would argue and I think that every single person here would agree that most of us do the same most of us do not set down most of us do not say we're no longer Christians when we go to bow down to our idols we still claim Christ and then we simultaneously bow down to our own golden calves do we love Christ yes but oftentimes we love the things of the world more bow down to idols do we profess fidelity to Jesus yes but oftentimes our lives reveal fidelity to temporal and earthly masters more do we know the laws and the teachings of Christ yes many of us do but how often do we bow down to the laws of the culture and to friends and peer pressure more we say we love God with all our heart all our mind all our soul all our strength we say that and yet, how oftentimes do we love our job more, or our spouse more, or our grandchildren more, or our money more? We don't, we don't denounce Christ and set him down and then go bow down to an idol. We'll claim both. And, and that's ridiculous because our Lord is a jealous God. And he wants all of you 
He wants all of our worship. So in our minds, like the Israelites, we may not call ourselves idolaters, but we're idolaters nonetheless because we've committed idolatry, and that means the real consequences from the living God will not, uh, will not pass us by. So Paul deals with idolatry first. Then he deals with sexual morality. You know what? Those are always linked. You're going to see idolatry and sexual morality throughout Scripture linked, and the, the one usually follows the other quickly. Paul's referring to Numbers chapter 25. I'll read to you a few verses from the chapter. Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. The Baal, the Moabites, the worship in that temple was done by prostitution with virgins. Virgin daughters. In Corinth, the primary temple was Venus. And the worship of Venus was very similar to the worship of Baal Peor in the, of the Moabites, where they engaged in temple prostitution as well. Now, saints, I, I don't believe that I need to go into great detail of how sexual immorality has captivated our culture and certainly made its way into the church. I, and I don't think I have to, and I don't even want to. We all know that. We all know that. I, would, I think it's sufficient to say that we as a culture and maybe as a church can compete with the sexual debauchery that took place amongst the Moabites and in Corinth and maybe even surpass them as a people. That we're not foreign to this sin today in the confines of the Christian church. So Paul deals with idolatry. He deals with sexual morality, both of which you can identify with. And then he deals with the testing of the Lord. The third sin he brings to their mind, tempting God by putting his fidelity and his love and his power to the test. Israel made this mistake in the desert in Numbers chapter 21, beginning at verse 4. Listen. The Israelites grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. That sound familiar? Manna again, again. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Amidst all the innumerable blessings that God had poured out, they had, they had, they had be almost become immune to the fact that God was still a holy, just God, and they deserved none of these blessings. And, they, and so they start to test God, and they test his fidelity, and they complain against God and Moses and the result's horrific. I mean, this is one of those stories that when you teach it, I mean, when people start thinking of venomous snakes roaming around and biting people and killing them, that's, that's got power in the imagery. And that's what happened as a result of their testing the living God. And lastly, Paul says, deals with grumbling. The idolatry, sexual morality, testing God and grumbling. And he draws this from Numbers chapter 14, verse 2 and following. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Can you hear that? that, that right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole congregation said to them, the whole congregation, so all the people, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? In verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? He wasn't looking for an answer from Moses. He knew the answer. And how long will they not believe in me in spite, listen to this, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence. It's amazing. They went from presumption to despair and they'd swing back and forth. At times so presumptuous that they had been called by God and they belonged to God, that they would test God. And God would send venomous snakes. And then other times, so filled with despair, as though there was no hope, they were never going to make it, that God could not finish what he started. Presumption and despair are not attributes that belong to any believer in Jesus Christ. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it beautifully in his book, Theology of Hope. Highly recommend the read. I'm going to read it twice. He's German. It's heady. So just listen. He writes, presumption is the premature, self-willed anticipation of what we hope of from God. 
the premature self-willed anticipation. And he said, despair is the premature, arbitrary anticipation of non-fulfillment. Did you hear that? Presumption is the premature, self-willed anticipation of what we hope from God. We bring it now. Despair is the premature, arbitrary anticipation of non-fulfillment. So rather, Paul's saying, rather than adopt the foolish presumptuousness of the strong, as many in Corinth were doing, or rather than become ultimately filled with despair, as many of the weak were doing, he says, the believer in Christ is to be humbly confident. Humbly confident. No, they're not worthy of any of the blessings, but confident that God is true and faithful to his word. Trusting in God. Not being presumptuous and not being filled with despair. Neither of those have their place in God's holy church. Humbly confident. Not in yourself, but in God and the work of Christ. They're grumbling against God, his servant, his will, and his plan for their life brought destruction. It brought the destroyer. It brought death. So do you see what's happened here? In light of four supernatural blessings, personal guidance, salvation, spiritual food, and spiritual drink, Paul brings forth four horrible sins against the God who blessed them. Idolatry, sexual morality, testing God, and grumbling, complaining. Can we not identify Can we not say, I know what Paul is talking about because this is the same God who has blessed me abundantly and I have committed idolatry and I've committed sexual immorality and I have grumbled against God and I put God to the test. He tells us this not to condemn us. He tells us this not to fill us with despair if you're saying, oh, I'm going to be bitten by venomous snakes too. He doesn't do it for that reason. He tells us this out of love that we might not make the same mistake. The same mistake the Israelites made in the desert, that the same mistake the Corinthians were making then. He says, you, church, Camden Avenue, don't make the same mistakes. Don't take for granted the blessings of God. Don't think that you can just muddle through this life with no, no consequences now or for all eternity. Don't think like that. God blessed all their fathers with guidance and salvation and food and drink. And most responded with idolatry, sexual immorality, the testing of God and grumbling against him. And the end was the destroyer. It was destruction. And so Paul is saying that no one, no believer is immune to this type of negligence. Our flesh, our sin nature draws us to be negligent, to take for granted the holiness of God and the blessings he's poured out. In fact, this, I do, but I believe this, that the, Paul begins this chapter 10 with a launch pad of verse 26 and 27 of chapter 9. He's preaching to himself. He's rightly concerned about himself. Look, just look back in the chapter with me. Look back at verse 26. We did this last week. Paul says, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul saved. We're not talking about salvation. Paul saved. He knows Christ. But Paul is rightly concerned about how he's running the race. This is the apostle Paul. If Paul's concerned, I'm concerned. Rightly so. If Paul says, I need to be aware of the race that I'm running, I need to press myself hard into Christ daily. I need to exercise self-control, as we saw last week, over my whole life, over my whole body, over all my mind and all my heart, that I might run well. I need to go into strict training that I might win the prize that's been set before me in Christ. Paul was rightly concerned that he too, the great apostle, might enter heaven with little or nothing to show of his life. He got it. He heard his own words echoing from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he said this, your work, he was saying to himself, my work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward 
Then he says in verse 15 in 1 Corinthians 3, if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. He will enter heaven, even though only escaping as one escaping through the flames. The Apostle Paul, he had that supernatural intervention on the road to Damascus. I mean, he knew what this this glory cloud, parting of the Red Sea, manna and drink was like, and he knew the great dangers of taking that for granted, of being negligent in light of the blessings that were poured out upon him. And he did not want himself. He did not want the Corinthians. And we can argue, he did not want any believer throughout all of human history to suffer the fate of the fathers in the desert, to be overcome. Experiencing the undeserved, supernatural blessings of God through Jesus Christ responding to his amazing grace as we often sing, not by running hard or boxing to win, not with self-discipline and control, but the fear was we would respond as they did with contempt and sin, idolatry and sexual immorality, testing and grumbling, grumbling. Paul did not want that for them. He did not want it for himself. He doesn't want it for you or for me or for the church. So when you hear this, the contemplation should immediately be, well, well, to what degree do I live rightly in light of the blessings poured out in my life? In light of the fact that I was dead when God made me alive? In light of the fact that God called me in Christ by name and he brought me in and he made me his? Am I negligent of these blessings? Or am I living as God has called me to live? Am I, am I putting myself under strict training? exercising self-control and great discipline on a daily basis? Or, or might I suffer the fate of the fathers in the desert being overcome by my own sin? If you're contemplating this, I thank God for that. If you're a bit overwhelmed, thinking, I, I can't do this, then let's get to our last point, the faithfulness of God. God is faithful, the title of the sermon, because this teaching can be overwhelming and I would argue is absolutely impossible in the flesh. You hear this and think, I must do this, you will fail. But if you hear what God says through the Apostle Paul in verses 12 and 13, there's great hope in the gospel of Christ and great power in his faithfulness. The Corinthians were sure in themselves. They, they, they thought their standing in God prevented them from possibly falling as those Israelites had in the desert. Look at verse 12. Paul says, therefore, in light of everything he just said, in verses 1 through 11, he says, therefore, let any one of you who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If any of you think you've arrived, if any of you think that, <clears throat> that you're just doing great and you're running the race and the, the wind's going to be easy, no problem. He says, take heed, be careful, lest you fall. And the purpose of the apostles' great history lesson with the nation of Israel is now laid bare for us. He's saying this, in the life of every believer, young and old, listen closely, saints, in the life of every believer, regardless of how blessed you may be, regardless of the experiences you, have, you may have had in Christ, regardless of the blessings that he has poured out on you, there is a perpetual danger of stumbling and falling and not running this race well until he calls you home or comes again in glory. That danger is real for every believer of living, of not living holy lives, the lives that God has called and equipped each of us to live as his children. And that means, my beloved, no degree of spiritual maturation, no experiential knowledge of God can justify a believer from not being careful, from not taking heed. I mean, we don't say that. He's saying, be careful, be aware, take heed. The word take heed, literally, it means to see clearly your daily life and calling with your mind's eye. To see truth rightly. To see everything that's transpiring according to the word by the power of the Holy Spirit and then to respond rightly to it with your whole life. With all of who you are to respond rightly to it, correctly to it. Take heed daily. So what? So that your whole life 
can be most honoring to Jesus. Isn't that what you want if you profess Christ? Don't you want your whole life to bring him the most honor? He's, He's worthy of it. Don't you want every day to bring him the most glory that he is worthy of? Paul says, if you do, then you must daily take heed. You must daily ask yourself, Am I living? Am I thinking? Am I speaking and reading and listening and loving and relating in a manner that is most honoring to my Savior? Daily take heed. Daily be careful. I've examined my life on this in these past several weeks, and I I don't think I'm careful enough. I think at times, I know at times, I just kind of stumble through the day. I stumble through the day, and at the end of the day, it's a mess. What a terrible day. What a terrible day as a servant of Christ. That didn't bring him any honor and glory. And that day, that day is recorded. That day is going to be brought out. And it's going to be a day when that one Christ is going to have to cover completely. Because I didn't love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I didn't run hard that day. I got a lot of days like that. I hear the Apostle Paul, and I'm, I'm rightly concerned. I pray you hear the Apostle Paul and are rightly concerned too because he's not just talking to pastors or teachers or deacons or ministers. He's talking to every believer in all of human history. Take heed. Take heed lest you fall. Lest you fall. Now many will hear this. Many will hear this teaching and say, this is an impossible calling. This is not doable. Not today, Pastor. Maybe back then, maybe in Corinth, and maybe for the Israelites who had the cloud by day and the fire by night, God's in, but this is not possible today. It's too hard today. I mean, the culture is filled with idols always pressing on me today. The culture is so much more sexually immoral today. The culture has pressed upon me the desire to test God myself. And we fool ourselves into thinking that we're in some strange anomaly of history, some weird historical moment where there are more idols and more sexual morality and more testing. And we do this only to rationalize our lack of self-control. We say it's different now, it's harder now. And therefore, if I sin and I stumble, I can justify and I can rationalize it. I can tell you why I lack self-control. It's harder. Corinthians had it easier. Israelites had it easier. When we do this, when we do this, when we rationalize our sin, we do it by blaming the culture and by claiming a lack of power. And Paul comes along in verse 13 and he says, both are lies. It's not the culture and it's not a lack of power. Look at verse 13. Wonderful way to close this teaching. Paul says, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He knows the Corinthians are listening to this and they're going, no way. In our cultural moment, this is too hard. This is too hard. And so they're going to use their cultural moment and the worship of Venus and the sexual immorality and the prostitution in the temple and the sacrificing of meat to idols. And they will say, it's not our fault. If we lived in a different time with better people, we wouldn't stumble like this. It's right to laugh because it's an hysterical thought. Paul makes it clear. Listen closely, saints. Whatever temptation you have experienced, it's not unusual to mankind. It's not. The temptations experienced by the Israelites, the trials experienced by the Corinthians were not superhuman, extraordinary temptations. They were common to all men in all times. This is a most important point, my beloved. And here's why. Our flesh, especially in the midst of trial and temptation, is quick to isolate ourselves. We isolate in our rebellion and we argue foolishly, no one knows how I feel. No one knows the trials that I'm going through. No one knows the temptations that vex my mind and soul daily. No one understands. And what do we do? We become an island. We isolate. We push away. And sometimes we almost say it with a sense of pride. Oh, I've gone through trials you couldn't possibly imagine. I've been tested in ways that no one could possibly know. Such a prideful statement. As soon as you do this, 
you do realize you set yourself above any help. You set yourself above any counsel, any rebuke, any word from God, because as soon as a brother or sister brings that to you, you'll say, well, you don't understand. You don't get it. You don't know. But Paul's saying here, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. All men. We all get it. We don't we all get it? I, and I understand that some people go, some people's lives are more difficult than others. But, but we all get the temptation thing. We all get the trial thing. We've all been through it. If you've lived even a few years, it's common. It wasn't just the Israelites in the desert. It wasn't just Corinth. It's not just San Jose. It's not Silicon Valley. It's not California. It's not. It's the human condition. We're fallen. It stinks at times. As soon as we elevate ourselves in our thinking and then justify it with our sinful behavior, it's not only foolish, but Paul's saying it's not necessary. He's saying it's not necessary to be so foolish and rationalize your sin by saying that your temptations are worse than others. He's saying that you have the power to be self-controlled. You have the power to be disciplined. You have the power daily to live holy lives. How do I know that? Look at the latter part of verse 13. It says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, this is so powerful, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what that means, saints. Every temptation, every trial you experience in your life in Christ God has provided for you a way of escape. Why? Because he's faithful. God is faithful. Just like the Israelites who were tempted and tried, God said, I'll bring you salvation. I'll bring you my guiding presence. I'll bring you spiritual food. I'll bring you spiritual drink. I am faithful. I won't let you fall. God is faithful. He will not let you. Do not listen to the lies. He will not let you be tempted He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. He will not do that. He's a good father. He's a good, gracious father. He knows our boundaries. He knows what will take us too far. And he guards our hearts and minds. He protects us in that manner. Why? So that we can make it through. So that we won't be compelled to sin. So that we won't be swallowed up by the culture. He does it, saints, so that we can endure under it. And it's not just endure and grovel through. It's being hyper-conquers in the midst of it. To blow through it. And to be, to be um, saints that grow in the midst of the trials and the temptations. God is faithful. He will preserve his people to the end. That's a promise of the faithful God. You know what that means? As I draw this to a close. Your strength. If you're listening to this and you say, I'm not strong enough. You're not. We're weak. And he said, I, I, I can't be this self-controlled, disciplined, holy person myself. You can't be. But God is faithful. And our strength as believers in Christ is derived from God's faithfulness. That means, saints, your strength isn't received from his grace. It's not received from your faith. And it certainly is not received from your strength. It's received from God's faithfulness. And you can go, well, faithfulness, it just, even in the context of preaching and teaching, it seems so abstract and esoteric. What are you talking about? I'm talking about a person. Let's make this crystal clear. Our strength comes from God's faithfulness. Paul, the apostle, I'm sorry, the apostle John said in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, listen closely. He says, then I saw heaven opened. Revelation 19, 11. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called, capital F, capital T, faithful and true. Your strength comes from God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is revealed in Jesus Christ. Christ is the faithful one. You don't have to go, how do I get my head around God's faithfulness? It's abstract. It's not. It's a person who came in the flesh who lived and died and rose again. And when he comes again in glory, he will come in the flesh. Why? So we can know him, the faithful one. And that's where we get our power. That's where we get our strength. That's when we can hear teachings like this to live self-disciplined, controlled lives, to be a holy people and not go, oh, 
We have power in Christ because he is the faithful one. He is the one who provides every believer a way of escape. Let me show you. In the desert, the Israelites had the cloud of glory. God in their presence leading them daily. In Christ, the believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, leading you daily. In the desert, the Israelites were saved by God from Pharaoh as God split the Red Sea and had them pass through. In Christ, every single believer is saved from the power of sin and death and hell through the cross of Christ as we pass through. In the desert, the Israelites were sustained by God with manna from heaven, bread from heaven. In Christ, you are sustained. Your soul is sustained daily by the bread of life, Jesus Christ. It's him. In the desert, they were sustained. Their their thirst was quenched by the water that flowed from the rock. And Paul tells us that rock is Christ. In Christ, every thirst, every longing, every desire in Christ can be quenched by Christ himself. Why? He says, I'm the living water. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. What a radical promise. You'll never thirst again for that job or that wife or that child or that career. You'll never thirst again in Christ because he is living water. So he says, drink from me and drink deeply from me. God has exercised his faithfulness to man in providing us a way of escape, a way of not being swallowed up by the world a way of exercising self-control and discipline and holy lives daily. He did this through his son. He did this by not allowing, by not making a way of escape for his son. When our Lord was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, listen closely, to turn from the mission of going to the cross and receiving in his body the sins of those who would be redeemed. When he was tempted in that time, we, ha- we have to argue the greatest temptation in all of human history experienced by any man was Christ in the cross. When he was tempted, he asked the Father in Luke 22, verse 42, he asked him for a way of escape. He asked him for a way out. He said in prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove the wrath that is about to come upon me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And the Father said, there's no other way. The Father said, there's no other way. In order for man to escape the consequences of his sin, in order for man to overcome the daily temptations and trials of this life, Christ had to die. Christ had to have no way of escape. In order for one person to be saved, Christ had to die this death that we might be saved. He is saints. Jesus Christ, the faithful one from whom we receive our power, he is our way of escape from sin and death and hell, and he is our way of escape every moment of every day from the trials and temptations that vex you. It's him. It's not a philosophy. It's not a verse. It's a person. It's the Savior. That means when you're tempted today, tonight, to bow down and worship idols with your time and your energy and your resources, the same idols who will ultimately destroy you, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't do that. He says, turn to Christ instead. Turn to the one who loves you so much that he did ascend the cross, that he did forsake a way out, that you might have life both now and for eternity. Turn to Christ and worship him. Reject the idol. Turn from the idol. When the lure of sexual immorality draws you in, Paul says, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ and find the real intimacy and the real love that he has to offer. Turn to Christ. When you find yourself, if you're like me, putting God to the test, questioning his fidelity, questioning his love, questioning his guidance. When you find yourself doing that, see how ridiculous a thought it is by turning to Christ and seeing that the Father had his son destroyed on a cross to have you. 
testing the faithfulness of God is ultimately foolish when you look at a crucified Savior on the cross. When you begin to grumble against God, as the Israelites did in the desert, when you begin to murmur against God, complaining that your life is not going as you want your life to go, that things aren't playing out as you plan, when you ascend the throne and become Lord, in those moments, the Apostle Paul is saying, turn to Christ and see his broken body and his spilled blood for your life. And Paul says lovingly, stop your murmuring tongue. Close your mouth. Stop grumbling. What are you complaining about? If you have Christ, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. We have no reason to complain, and I preach to myself. My beloved, Jesus Christ is your your guiding cloud by day and fire by night. Jesus Christ is your deliverance to the Red Sea. Jesus Christ is your daily food. Jesus Christ is your living water. Jesus Christ is your life. So I will say to you, as the Apostle Paul did, turn to Christ if you're unsaved. Repent and believe and follow Jesus. Turn to Christ if you are saved. Repent and follow Jesus. Turn to Christ if you're under trial and temptation. Turn to Christ in any circumstance, at any moment, that you might live this life in a manner that truly pleases the Father. Self-controlled, disciplined, holy lives every day for what, how many days God gives you. And you don't know how many of those are. Turn to Christ when you feel overcome by the world, by the trials of this life. And he promises to give you a way of escape. Every time, every time, every time you're tempted, every time you're tried, God promises there's a way of escape. It's Christ. It's Christ. I'm going to close and pray with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon's words, Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers, and as I read this, you'll know why if you haven't listened or heard or read many of his sermons. He had the ability to to convey spiritual truths almost in poetic fashion. He brought God's word to life in a way I pray he does here as we close. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Christ. He, the Spirit, tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, Spurgeon says, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And then he says this, keep your eyes simply on him, let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glory, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you awaken in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. And then he says this, follow hard after him. Follow hard after him and he will never fail you. Spurgeon saying, run the race hard. Exercise self-control and discipline daily. Set it upon your mind and heart that each and every day you will pursue Christ with all your might and you won't deviate from that narrow path. Set your mind and heart on that this day, this hour. And then we too will be able to sing with the great hymn, My Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would forgive us for placing our hope on so many things other than Christ. So many things other than his blood and his righteousness. 
I pray, Father, that you would bless us, and we need it. We need you to bless us with an understanding of this teaching. Guard us from becoming works-based in our salvation, thinking that somehow we have to work our way into your good standing. Guard us from that. And at the same time, guard us from a life of, of licentiousness and laziness, thinking because we have been bestowed by all these blessings from heaven that we can just muddle through life and it doesn't matter. Guard us from that as well. Set our feet upon that narrow path where we know We've been saved by your grace in Christ alone. And in this saving power, in Christ himself, the faithful one, we can, we can be a holy people. We can live self-controlled, disciplined lives. We, we actually, we actually, as a church, as a body of believers, can collectively pursue you and your son through the cross. That We can bring you honor and glory. We don't have to be constantly stumbling and falling. That we don't have to repeat the mistakes of our forefathers in the desert. We don't have, that doesn't have to be our life. I pray that for myself, my brothers and sisters here. I pray it for my brothers and sisters throughout the world, for every church, for every true church that loves Christ, that preaches the gospel, that desires to be holy. I pray that for your church today. I know how hard it is. I know, Lord, we know the difficulty of this time. But we're not foolish. We know that no temptation, no trial that has come to us is not common to all men in all history. We know that. So remove that foolishness. Remove the excuses. Compel us to holiness. Compel us to righteousness. Cause us this very morning to put our hope and faith in Christ alone. To rely upon him, the faithful one. To turn to him to stay in him. This is where we long to be, even though we live otherwise. This is where we long to be. In Christ's name, amen.